0: CliffCentral.com
1: Welcome to the Renegade Report, I'm Jonathan.
0: And Ramon is present as always, how are you Wits?
1: Yeah, I'm alright, I'm alright, a bit of crazy traffic today and um, I don't know how you made it to the studio, isn't there a ban on, on Arabs or something like that?
0: Only in the U.S. Not yet, as far as I know. Everyone's welcome, except the Dalai Lama. And that
1: homophobic preacher.
0: Yes, but Pot dictators accused of genocide? Please, come on through. No we will, problem. We will no problem. take them with pleasure. We are pleasure. very
1: welcoming as South Africans. Very much so. Very to, welcoming.
0: Maybe too welcoming to certain people. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, Trump's
1: banning all Muslims from yeah. all Muslim countries. All Muslim. Apparently, he's, uh, he hates minorities. Uh, even though Muslims are in the major- majority worldwide well, yeah, it's as a religion.
0: That's big, the biggest religion in the world. Anyway,
1: um, I'm sure we can get into some of the Trump stuff. Uh, as you can hear, we're not freaked out by it. Although I think his ban is wrong, uh, for uh, so? what it's worth. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to get quite as hysterical as some people online have. Uh, but uh, this is the ill-fated recording that uh, we recorded once. And uh, I don't know what happened. The communists got to it. And unfortunately, for some reason, we just didn't get it. We didn't get it, and then we tried to record the second time,
0: and then there was systems failure once again, hacked by the Russians. Yeah, well, of course. Of and course, they so don't no, want this out there. No, they don't want, no, they don't want to, to hear us. And now, third time lucky. And if this doesn't record, I'm going to shoot myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, same here. Well, we'll just release it without the recording and people can fill in the blank spaces. That's postmodern art, man. That's what it is. Post-modern That's what it is. So, our guest today is Russell Lamberti. He is the MD and chief strategist at investment advisory firm ETM Analytics. Um, Russ, uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, third time lucky.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's good to be here. I think
1: we'll get this one done. Very, very much hopeful.
2: (laughs) Right. I mean,
0: I think it's it's important for people to know that Russell is an economist. So it's just above uh, being a priest, I think, uh, in terms of (laughs) prophecy. Uh, But nevertheless, Russell, um, so South Africa, you know, the southern tip of, of, of this continent, we are seen as some, a very important, uh, economic power. I don't know where, uh, but, um, how are we doing I- on the economic front at least?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, South Africa has been, um, been struggling for, for quite a long time. You know, I think that we've, we've got a, a government making decisions, um, at a, at a very high level, um, and, and those decision makers, I mean, you know, governments around the world at the best of times don't really understand economics and how to make an economy grow. Um, but in South Africa, that, uh, that problem seems to be particularly chronic amongst our, our leaders and, and, and policymakers here. Um, for, <clears throat> for at least 10 years um, or so, we've been in a, in a kind of macroeconomic stagnation. Very, very little economic progress uh, of any meaningful um, sort of description, and uh, and and so, you know, and I think that our economy, on the whole, is is fragile, is probably a little bit brittle. Yeah, uh, yes, hasn't maybe suffered from quite as much hubris and exuberance as we've seen um, as we've seen overseas um, in the last number of years on the big. Money printing bubble. So maybe that's a little bit counting in our favor. We've sort of maybe sidestepped some of that a little bit. But um, lots of big challenges for SO's economy and um, not doing ourselves any favors by the policy mix that we have here domestically, which we can get into.
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to throw the question out that uh, Ramon asked you previously, which was uh, tell us why our communist finance minister, who everyone seems to love, uh, is such a bad idea, and, and, and as you've mentioned, over the past eight years, eight to ten years, we've we really stagnated, and of course, there have been excuses like uh, you know, the 2008 economic crisis, and there's all kinds of um, wonderful excuses, not disinterest in foreign direct investment. People love comparing us to the other BRICS countries, um, but tell us why uh, Previn is not the gift that everyone tells us he is.
2: Yeah, look, I think it's actually a very important question because it goes to the heart of the political economy situation in South Africa at the moment. Um, you know, we we currently have a struggle between this idea of, of state capture, kind of corrupt cronyist uh, administration, uh, you know, headed up by Jacob Zuma, uh, contrasted with the enlightened, um, progressive. You know, uh, Cabal, which which Pravin Gordon is essentially the poster child of. Um, and, of course, it all came to a head in that, in that Nene Gate scandal with the sacking of Fanta Nene and then you know through a whole uh, a drama and saga over a weekend, Pravin Gordon was reinstated as the finance minister um, to great fanfare. And, of course, he's been able to use this um, this you know, complete uh Lack of confidence in the Zuma administration and juxtaposing himself against that uh, against that administration to sort of paint himself in a very good light. But I have to say that I think I think that him and the and the sort of socialist communist cabal that, that has basically usurped so many of the key policy making functions are really playing a very clever game of of uh, public relations management here because they've really been at the helm and, and steering the ship under the Zuma administration. In fact, Zuma, um, in particular as a president, is, is quite deferential to these, uh, you know, SACP socialist uh, policymakers. He's let them basically have free reign and kind of do what they want. Um, and now that uh, they've got a chance, they see they're on a sinking ship, they will never admit that it's because of their policies, but they kind of see a way to sort of sidestep the... Um, the blame by jumping off, you know, jumping off the Zoomer ship, so to speak. Um, we can get into the specifics of, of how the likes of Pravin Gordon and Rob Davies and Abraham Patel and these sorts of guys have, have got us to where we are today. Um, but you know, make no mistake, Pravin Gordon has been right in the thick of the policy mix you know, of, the last, of the last 10 years or so. And uh, you know, being in the fiscal position, being the Minister of Finance, managing, um, you know, uh, revenues and expenditures, um, he's overseen a dramatic increase in South Africa's debt. Um, South Africa's debt levels have ramped up. And really, the uh, you know, as we now stare down uh, ratings agencies and face potential ratings downgrades, Robin Gordon is is one of the uh, you know, architects of this policy and is surely at least one of the key people to blame for getting us into this predicament. So Russell, if you have to to name
0: not not to get too specific, but name two or three policies uh, that he has formulated or that he has implemented which have caused you know a, a more general sense of poverty in South Africa.
2: Well look I mean if we had to if we had to go back to 2000, uh, 2008 2009 <clears throat> when Trevor Manuel handed over to bra Goran. Um, he he was instrumental in starting to ramp up the deficit spending um, after the balanced budget era of Trevor Manuel. Now, you know, I don't like to make this too much about the personalities and the, and, the, and the specific people. Trevor Manuel, um, you know, yes, he ran balanced budgets, but he did it at a time when uh, when you know global conditions and domestic conditions were very very favorable for him to do that. So he kind of got lucky and Praveen Gordon took over when things had reversed dramatically you know the commodity super cycle was coming to an end the economy was in recession global economy was in recession and of course the um, the policy de jour back then um, was was uh, you know deficit spending uh, ramp up the ramp up the fiscal deficits governments were borrowing all over the world the us went into big debt uk uh, European economies as well. So, um, so you know, he was very much part of that, but I think, you know, he ran with it, he embraced it. And I think key is that he was never able to bring it down and reverse it again, um, substantially anyway. Uh, and so we sit with this legacy now of year after year, huge deficits. So I think that's got to be a very important factor that Praveen Gordon has, has, you know, that's a big legacy that he's had. I mean, I think the other thing to say from a fiscal perspective is that we've basically, over the, over the last number of years, we've increased the tax burden. We've raised tax rates. We've, we've made um, capital gains taxes more burdensome. We've just generally um, raised taxes uh, stealthily in some ways, more explicitly in other ways, across a range of taxation areas, whether it be income tax or capital you know, investment taxes and, and, and so on. So, I mean, I think that's clearly that's clearly a problem. I mean, South Africa is is not the kind of economy that, that can withstand these sorts of uh, these sorts of uh, increases in regulation and taxation. So, those would be just some examples, um, some fairly obvious examples. And then, you know, I think I think that um, you know more 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 broadly, Pravin Gordhan is fundamentally a statist and a big developmental status and and that is a that is a kind of marxist term that refers to to this notion that government is the key part of economic development it's the antithesis of of a sort of a classical liberal typically you know historically western understanding of, of economic development um, where you have a, a dispersion and a diffusing of economic activity and of decision-making power, and you allow much more freedom amongst actors in the economy to participate. Why I'm kind of going into this is to say that, you know, when you're steering a big fiscal ship, these kind of big ideological positions matter. And uh, and Pravin on every year he gets up, if you just listen to his language, the, 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 the language that he uses, of the language of development, there is very little chance with with him and his cabal at the at the helm that we're gonna get any kind of meaningful fiscal turnaround in this country. And that's why for so many years now, when economists keep giving Kevin Gordon six or seven out of ten at the budget, we continue to give him three or four. Because even if he's able to tweak you know some budget line items to sort of make things look okay, he's not fundamentally turning the ship around. He he fundamentally believes that the that the state, specifically the ANC, should be tasked with playing god in uh, in, in the South African economy and, and directing all forms of development. So, so this is, I think, ultimately massively uh, detrimental to to South Africa's economy.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would tend to agree because once you give um, the state a lot of power to to run the economy, well, that's what that's what happens when uh, that's, that causes corruption, right? There's a lot more lucre to be spread around. So arguably uh, Praveen and his ilk uh, can be the, the, the reasonable cause of the state capture, as we know it now, of, say, the Guptas, right? If the state has 700 state-owned enterprises, that money has to flow somewhere, and why not to friends and family?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the communists um, that are running many of these key economic nodes are painting themselves as these sort of anti-corruption warriors but they are actually delusional because corruption follows a big government like night follows day um, you know th- they want their hands in all the pies of the economy they want to control trillions of rand's worth of economic activity every year they want to deci- you know they want to say in in, uh, everything from who you can hire to how you can hire them to, to the terms and conditions upon which you can hire them to how much you can pay them to the color of the skin of the person you, you need to hire I mean these guys want these guys want control at every level and, and then they are um, saying well you know it's it's, it's quite a pity that um, you know, our our National Democratic Revolution has been derailed by corruption I mean corruption is the only result the only thing that can result. <laughs> From a national democratic revolution, where you where you essentially try to dominate the entire developmental space uh, with the state and with and with all the the power, lawmaking power, cronyism that can potentially result from that. So I mean, it's it's just quite funny how they how they think that they have a chance of being non-corrupt when the very essence of what they're doing can only lead to corruption.
1: All right, so then I'm going to ask if we move laterally then from that point, which is uh I see on the weekend there was uh some one particular article which said that uh Brian Mulefi is waiting to basically be appointed as the new finance minister, and um Praven is going to be removed uh and obviously uh the comment on the my feed on facebook which uh is generally people with their heads quite well screwed on, even though I don't agree with all of them, uh, was, well, you know, um, this will be the terrible, absolutely catastrophic. And, and I sort of commented, well, uh, while I don't necessarily disagree that it'll be bad, uh, I don't see how moving from, uh, the communist to, well, I don't know, the puppet, um, is, is much different. What do you think if that were to happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that clearly there is now a bit of a there's a bit of almost kind of game theory going on now with with Zuma and the Treasury and Pravin Gordon and investors, you know, the investment community. And you know, there's now there's now an expectation, there's now a meme that if Pravin is fired, that's bad for South Africa, and if he stays, that's good. So I I suspect that if if he is ousted um, in a cabinet reshuffle. Um, you know that might be there might be an unfavorable reaction to that like I don't know how violent it might be we saw what happened at the end of 2015 we saw what happened at various times in 2016 when there was uncertainty around the treasury position and I think with good reason because when a treasury is is captured for for truly kind of corrupt uh, or very directly corrupt political ends and and then you know that opens up the doorway to potentially the Reserve Bank being captured, and um, the minute you go that route, you're kind of going a Venezuela Zimbabwe type route where you're getting into the money printing game, which is, you know, which is disastrous. I mean, we're not there yet, but you can see why investors, um, you know, have a big problem with that because that can be a very, very slippery slope. So, as much as as much as there's a, a socialist kind of communist cabal. You know, running the show now, uh, certainly a treasury in the form of Prime Gordon and his, particularly his deputy, Mr. Uh, CBC Jonas, um, <coughs> to the extent that they're in charge, but don't want to go the the full, the full Monty and kind of you know print money at the central the, bank. The it's,
1: devil you know, then the devil we
2: don't. Yeah, a little bit like that, and I think to the to the extent that they don't go you know full capture and 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 totally turn these institutions into 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 outright you know corrupt fiefdoms. Um, I, I agree that there's you know that, that we're probably better off with with the one we have now than the one that may come. However, we also don't know that what may come is necessarily going to be worse. Um, you know it's not it's not necessarily to say that that we are going to get the kind of slippery slope that I'm talking about. Um, and who knows? You know, maybe, maybe actually, someone who's less ideological in that position might actually be a little bit better. Someone who's maybe a little bit more open to to persuasion, um, maybe a little bit more open to to, to some, you know, uh, some pressure from from uh, you know, business interest groups or, or you know, who knows what. Um, on the whole, I, I I don't see how changing the finance minister. Um, Barring you know, unless we go unless we go a real low road of, of, of crony capture, of, of, you know, total corruption of these institutions, if we don't go that, that route, then I, I, I quite honestly don't see how, you know, getting rid of Proven Gordon is a huge catastrophe. In fact, he's brought us to a very precarious fiscal situation and I think doesn't really deserve to, to have his position, if, if I'm honest. I mean, I think someone else does. Someone else at least deserves a shot. At trying to trying
0: to turn this big dead jug around. Well, so so fundamentally, your conclusion is Praveen has has led us to a stage where you know we on we on the cliff, we are on the precipice. If we carry on with him, it's an inevitable inevitable decline. Um, if he's replaced, we don't actually know. If it will be worse, that's how bad we are at the moment. So yeah, so keep Gordon or or. Change, but maybe it will cause uh, Zimbabwe levels of hyperinflation if all those institutions are captured, as you said, for corrupt means.
2: Yeah. Look, I mean, and the thing is that, that if 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 the state, if the if the core of the ANC wants to go Zimbabwe Venezuela, then you know Private Gordon can't do much. I mean, he'll he'll get sacked if he if he doesn't want to go with that plan. Um, if he wants to go with that plan, he'll keep his job and he'll, and he'll have to aid and abet that process. I mean, I just, you know, he's, 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 he does have power. He is a powerful position. In the, he's a cog in the wheel, um, but he's quite a powerful cog in the wheel. Because of his public relations efforts, he's a very good propagandist and he's, and he's positioned him and the communists and the, and the socialists quite well, um, even though he would refrain from defining himself as, as a Marxist or a socialist. He's part of that kind of group. So he's played the game cleverly, uh, but ultimately, you know, it's so much bigger than Pravin Gordon. Uh, this is this is you know about. I mean, really, let's be honest. This is about a, a ruling Nash, African National Party that is just corrupt and and inept from from top to bottom. I mean, this this political organisation is like a is like a rotting corpse at the moment, and uh, you know, some political analysts think it might might not even be around in the next 10 years. It might be breaking up in the next few years. The chances of a big ANC split are, are bigger than they've ever been. So um, I, I, I just want to caution. So you're right, I think, in the way you summed it up. We obviously don't want to go as Zimbabwe well. Venezuela route. It's a, that's a terrible, terrible path. It's a, it's a, a you know, humanitarian crisis, um, to say the least. But um, but I also think that, that this is much bigger than Pravin Gordon and, uh, and you know the, we can slay we can slay any kind of dragon, we can slay the Zuma dragon or the Pravin Gordon dragon or the SACP dragon. But the big the big problem is, is this big socialist African national African nationalism that resides in the ANC, this cronyism that resides in the ANC. this, this political unit has to just be shattered. And uh, that's how South Africa I think is able to, Kind of constructively move
0: forward, but I mean that's what we're doing with this podcast, uh, Russell. We will be the ones to shatter uh, the, the, the socialists from from over here. Just wait till this podcast reaches three, four, five million people.
2: But uh, all right, so just. I might, not, I might not live that long to see it, but uh,
0: yeah. You cut us deep, eh? You She's, cut us really
2: deep. We're number
0: we're number one on iTunes. I'll have you know. <laughs> So, Russell, last thing about South Africa because that's the least interesting. But so the DA, right? They—I mean, I don't know much about their economic policies. They got a, a libertarian in in the party to some extent, and he's running Joburg at the moment, and he's trying to clean up. I don't—I'm not—we're not too sure how well he's doing. Uh, but um, what do they have any policies that might help us? Should they gain power in the future?
2: Look, I, I think that the DA. Um I really like you know, I like a lot of the DA's liberal, let's even call a classical liberal um, some of, some of their classical liberal DNA, so to speak. Um, I think that they've lost a lot of that unfortunately over the last five to ten years um, and they and they ha- you know so, so I think the DA has gone from maybe a, a conservative classical liberal, towards something that's moving a little bit more to the left maybe a little bit more to the centre and then to the left of centre um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that because the DA is, is fundamentally playing the election game, it wants to win a national election and to do that you've got to, you've got to win the median voter and um, and median voter in South Africa is, is you know, low income is black um, and and will be partial to I think you know just policies that have have typically resonated with that base and that's not generally the policies that have resonated with the da's traditional kind of minority ethnic minority base so so the da will have to will have to um, live in contradiction a little bit it'll pretend you know in front of some constituencies that it's a classical liberal party it'll have to sort of pander to some of these you know, more populist positions. It'll, it'll, you know, to really embrace black economic empowerment um, when it was, it was always historically against uh, those kinds of policies. Um, so it's, it's just naturally going to morph into something that um, I probably won't like. Um, I, I really don't love the DA, but I, I probably will dislike them quite a bit the more and more that they have to morph into this sort of. Uh, Frankensteinian sort of political animal, um, full of contradictions and so on. It's a tough task. They're trying to win elections. Um, can they can they solve these You problems? Know, I think that could be quite effective, maybe at the at the municipal city level. Cape Town, you know, D. A. seems to do quite well. And um, Johannesburg's a big big uphill climb. Um, uh, you know, after many many years of disrepair and mismanagement, so that's a tough one to to fix. Um, at a, you know, as a national party I, yeah, I expect that they would be more liberal and, and on the whole I think they would govern this country you know, probably better than the ANC but it's a tough country to govern and they haven't really you know, been able, you know, there, there, there's no example of them doing it yet so you know, I don't place my hope particularly in the DA um, but I do think they're, a, they're clearly an improvement than you know, the rotting corpse Uh,
1: Yeah, it's interesting some of the points you make because I almost feel like there is a move, we've discussed it on the show before in terms of the need to move more towards the left to try and pick up uh, that audience uh, or that voter but at the same time they, they sometimes make decisions that which are illiberal, that they don't need to make. For example, stopping the sale of alcohol on a Sunday. Um, That wasn't doing any damage, uh, or they can't really prove that it was doing any damage. They've got this theory... Uh, we do want to get Helen Ziller in the sh- in the studio. They've got this theory that you know if if you drink alcohol or you can buy alcohol on a Sunday, it means uh, you know that's the only way you would be able to drink alcohol on a Sunday, and somehow crime, violence, domestic abuse, etc. is all going to just go through the floorboards if that happens. Um, I mean that ban's been in place for a while now. I don't think anything's changed in terms of the crime statistics, um, and and it does seem that they just pass things that sometimes don't make sense. So I'm not even sure it's an ANC versus DA issue. It's just some confusion.
2: I think South Africa, South Africans are quite prone to some of these stupid illiberal policies. Um, you know, even Herman Mashaba, the, the so-called, uh, the so-called libertarian mayor who who I, by the way, I think is, is great and I admire, but you know, he was talking about the war on drugs, you know, and the DA, of course, are big on the war on drugs down here in the Cape. And, um, you know, I think that uh, I think that this, you know, ultimately that's very counterproductive. We, you know, we've seen that globally. The the ban on alcohol on Sundays. I mean, I, I suspect maybe they were pandering to like a conservative Muslim voter base, maybe down here in the Cape. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, very hard to figure out why they, why they pass stupid, illiberal laws like that. So yeah, they are prone to doing silly things. The DA and um, and, you know, they're also – they've shown that they're quite efficient. And I, I talk about dangerous efficiency sometimes because sometimes, you know, when you've got an illiberal party that's also very efficient at implementing their plans and their policies, um, that can sometimes actually be quite dangerous and quite, uh, quite oppressive. So um, they're nannies. The DA are nannies. Helen Zilla is a nanny. Um, uh, Musi Maimani is probably also a bit of a nanny. Um they, they're nannies and uh, they're, they're quite illiberal a lot of the time. So you know, they don't get my pulse racing. Let's put it that way.
1: <laughs> well, let's get uh, let's get straight across then to illiberal policies. Um, President Trump. Um, has, uh, has taken power. We are speaking basically one week into his presidency because he took the weekend after his inauguration off, uh, and then immediately signed a whole bunch of executive orders, which have left people literally hysterical. Um, I don't think anything he's done so far, um, just, whether you agree or disagree, justifies, um, hysteria. A couple of, uh, you know things that he's done. He's, he 's done is he 's stopped funding going to u uh, s government organizations who work in the international community they aren 't allowed to promote abortion or give abortions with u s tax money any longer that 's an old rule that Reagan brought in, and then basically the Republicans bring it in the Democrats sign it out the Republicans bring it back in um, and then obviously the one over the weekend that 's caused basically what all I could see on Twitter was a meltdown a complete and utter meltdown. Um, of people just losing their minds, uh, you know, a protest at, at uh, JFK, uh, which stopped flights and, and and a number of people from traveling, including Muslims, um, uh, which basically, you know, I just want to say that there's been a lot of misreporting. I know that this isn't necessarily part of our discussion, but there's been a lot of misreporting on this because it's not a Muslim ban to start off with it. Um, it's, it's a ban on seven countries where the majority of people happen to be Muslim. Um, you won't find um, many Jews or Christians in a lot of those countries, and there's a good reason for that. What Trump claims is the reason he passed the rule. They're hated and killed. Um, and so, you know, obviously I think it isn't a, a functionally an illiberal policy, but I don't think there's it's worth the insanity. You seem to have a slightly different view on Trump, uh, a bit more sane of a view on Trump. Um, do you want to tell us that in, in an economic sense um, where you think uh, things are going with him?
2: Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that the first point is that there has been massive hysteria. Um, the the reaction to to this travel ban is, I think, disproportionate. But I would I would potentially see it in two ways. You know, the one is that I think it's it's been blown out of proportion, which I think it has. I mean, if you if you go and read the actual travel order, I mean, I think you have to read quite. F- quite deep between the lines to infer a you know, a very malicious intent here on the, on the part of the Trump administration. I mean, I think that they are trying to grapple with a problem that perhaps they don't fully understand. Um, I mean, Jonathan, you and I might differ on this, but I think that a lot of the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East over the last 20, 25 years has created a lot of the problems that, they, that we're now seeing in terms of refugees, um, you know, very unstable countries that have allowed, in many instances, terrorists to take root. Um, you know, funding streams between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia you know, have clearly been counterproductive. Um, so there's a whole there's a whole kind of foreign policy mess that and and what I see this travel ban is sort of just a fairly fairly small extension of of what we've already been seeing for a long time. I mean, he's he's only extended this ban onto onto countries that Obama had already identified as, as problem countries, so to speak. Um, Obama himself uh, stopped all Iraqis, uh, proce- you know, stopped processing all Iraqis coming into the U.S. for six months in 2011. No outrage then. Mm-hmm. So and Haitians
1: add- as well. He uh, stopped a whole bunch of Haitian immigrants as well. Um, wh- whether you find either right or wrong, both have done it.
2: Yeah, so so well, I think the point to be made there is that um, outrage in mainstream media on you know in Twitter, which is you know let's face it, Twitter is predominantly a kind of um, liberal sort of you know space. Um, you know, outrage uh, is much more when there's a Republican president than when there's a Democrat. Uh, you know, the Democrats were anti-war when Bush was in power. Obama came in, they shut up. We didn't see war protests for eight years, and now we you know now the protests have started again. Um, so it's very partisan, but you know, if it if it's if it highlights um, for people some of these key issues, some of these are liberal issues, and it, and it's bringing these things to the surface, that's fine. Um, I just think that uh, you know I, I struggle with this absolute loss of any sense of proportion. Um, it's actually important because when you get real problems, um, you don't have your, your outrage barometer is totally totally broken. Um, and and uh, you know people I th- I just think people won't have the correct mechanisms to know how to react to certain problems I mean if they think they think this is bad they've got another thing coming you know they've got another thing in store for the next 10 years because the next 10 years of politics is going to be very very messy very very volatile so you know, I'm trying to encourage people to just calm down re- you know try and understand the bigger context in which all this is playing out in Trump Himself has inherited a mess, a, bit, a you know, tip, you know, big mess across the spectrum. He's got a massive national debt uh, that he's got to deal with. He's got a rogue, you know, environmental protection agency that has gone absolutely crazy against, um, you know, fossil fuels and it's trying to regulate the hell out of, uh, you know, fossil, the fossil fuel industry. He's inherited um, a CIA that. That has arguably, you know, got some serious uh, institutional problems uh, going on there. Uh, he's inherited, um, you know, heavy banking regulations from Dodd Frank that he's got to deal with. He's got wars on the go. He's got, uh, you know, he's just got a whole lot going on. He's got big refugee crises, and I think this, this 90-day travel ban is a bit of a is, is a way for his administration to to try and sort of figure things out. Um, you know, I don't, I don't support it. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that, you know, the hysteria about it is, is just, just misplaced, overdone. And I just can't indulge that. I just find it incredibly frustrating.
0: So Russell, let's talk about his economic policies because, in essence, I disagree with them fundamentally. They, they protectionist. They, I mean, free traders has made the world a better place and anyone who argues otherwise is, is just non-evidence-based. However, people were left behind, and we do understand that now. So are you in the same boat as me where I don't like his policies, but I sort of understand them in a way?
2: Well, I mean, I, I always understand political policies because – um, if you understand political motives you can, and, and, and the political zeitgeist, you can understand policies. Um, but, you know, I can understand in some ways Hugo Chavez's policies, but they're awful and they, they wreck a country. Look, Trump, um, Trump's actually a mixed bag. Um, and this is what's not, I think, well understood. Uh, look, I think overall he, he, he probably doesn't understand, almost certainly doesn't understand economics very well. His trade policies are, are poor. Um, well, his trade ideas. I mean, we, we haven't had any kind of firm policy yet. Other than that, he he sort of scrapped uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which doesn't seem like a bad move to me. Uh, that was, a, I think, a 6,000-page, clearly overregulated, crony document. And he's going to angle for just bilateral agreements with countries and I think may end up getting quite, quite liberal – free trade agreements with them. Certainly with the UK, that seems like it's on the table. So um, I don't want to jump to conclusions on trade yet. I mean, his, his talk, some of his talk is concerning, and, and I agree. Global free trade has been great. The reason why some people might feel left behind is either because they're not um, adaptive enough humans, or they've been let down by bad policy domestically, monetary policy, fiscal policy, which I think have led to stagnation in the United States, not because China had, has taken you know, jobs or anything like that, but, but domestic policy-based. And it's actually not a big mystery. When countries get saddled with with you know, up to their eyeballs in debt, they grow slower, uh, and it's like a historical fact. You know, it's huge debt levels, slow growth until you wipe those away somehow. Either you have a debt, debt jubilee. Or you have, uh, you know, you got to figure out some way. Or you have a war, but you but you've got to figure out, got to figure out some way to, um, to get rid of the debt levels. So, um, so you know, I, and then you got to look at Trump's, you know, some of his more potentially good stuff, which is, which is, I think, what he's doing in the in the EPA looks pretty good. Um, I think he wants to halve the size of that that organization, make it far more, far less intrusive. And uh, and meddling, you know, I think he wants to deregulate energy. We've already got um, some pipeline um, go-aheads, which I think is good. It's very good. You know, the more oil supply, the better. We need low oil prices. Um, Obviously, you don't want to go and, you know, ruin the environment entirely by doing that. But there's some cost to anything we do, anything we extract in the the world. And then finally, just to say, you know, he's, he's tackling Obamacare and he's going to tackle the banking regulations. Now, he's got a big challenge on healthcare because Obamacare uh, is not the only problem in the, in the healthcare industry. It's uh, you know it was, it was a problematic sector before Obama, you know, created the Affordable Care Act. So he's got some difficult things there. But basically, uh, he seems to be talking in a much more free market direction on that, which I like. And same on banking, and I think that's probably what a lot of the, the stock market is reacting to as well. So, um, you know, if I, if I sum him up in totality from an economic perspective, I think he gets business. He gets that business shouldn't be heavily regulated. You know, he gets the kinds of conditions that businessmen and women like to operate in. Um, he's fundamentally kind of capitalistic in that sense. It doesn't quite understand the international business arena or trade arena, um, so he's not unambiguously bad. You know, I think he's—I um, think that there's nuance there, and I think on, on balance, it's, it's not obvious that his policies are are negative for the US.
1: Yeah, it's uh, interesting. It's an interesting perspective because. Uh, you know, just citing some of those things, um, your TPP uh, that is cancelled, that, that that trade partnership um, is always cited as you know it's thoughtless. And he, and now what are we going to do? I actually want to ask you a follow up question on that. But um, you know, the the pipeline is is immediately the immediate jump is to. Um, Pipeline equals destroy the entire environment, which it, it, it doesn't. A lot of the arguments around the pipeline is actually around where it's going to travel and traverse, um, which is actually a bigger issue for me in terms of private property rights and government should compensate appropriately or bury the pipeline or do whatever they need to do. Um, but uh, on the just, just uh, as a broader concept, uh, stepping sli- slightly away from Trump uh, himself, um, with uh, the sort of uh, you know, partnerships. So uh, these trade trade deals. Why why do I need to have the government make a trade deal with another country? Why can't I just say Russell lives in Cape Town. I live in Los Angeles. Russell has a book to sell. I want to buy it. Russell wants my money job done. Why do we need to have the governments and why is that such a big deal? Is it, is it because it gets broader than that and Amazon wants to buy 3,000 books or what's, what is the need for these huge deals which in my opinion seem to actually cut out the, the bottom end of the market?
2: Well, I think your question sort of answers itself. You don't need these deals. Um, you, you know, countries don't trade with each other. People trade with each other. Businesses trade with each other. Um, you just need you just need you know unfettered access to to be able to trade with whomever you like, wherever you like. Um, the reality is, in any case, already that many countries trade with one another without trade deals. So you know, I mean, there are not you know all however many countries there are in the world these days. You know, all 200 countries are not, don't have um, trade deals with all. 200 other countries. You know, it, it's 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 actually um, many countries just trade without trade. So, so uh, um and, and and some countries, of course, just put just put tariffs in place as a sort of blanket measure uh, across the board to whoever whoever you know brings things into their countries. Some countries are very free trading countries. Your Scandinavian countries, uh, Sweden tends to be very very free trade oriented. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think on the whole, trade deals are, are similar to, you know, big legislation internally that would regulate an industry. It's all about kickbacks, you know, crony backslapping and back rubbing, um, you know, who can, you know, political lobby groups, you know, all these sorts of things. So in these big trade deals, you've got all the industry groups lobbying for protection. You've got all the... You know the, the the whole political sort of game happens in these trade deals, um, and it's and it's to the detriment of the consumer, and it and it basically just makes global trade more difficult. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I I think, well, I know because the theory is very clear and the evidence is very clear that unilateral decra- declaration of free trade is actually the best trade policy. Um, so even if even if the country that you're trading with wants to put tariffs and, and, and trade barriers on your products going to their country, if you just unilaterally declare free trade, so whatever they want to send you can come in freely, whatever you want to send out can go out freely, um, that, is, that is a, a net beneficial um, trade position. Um, and uh, the reason why it doesn't get implemented is because of, I guess, politics... Um, and, and the political process, lobbying, the whole, you know, the whole thing. People, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, small lobby groups are very scared of free trade because it might undermine their position. They, you know, people work themselves into positions of political patronage and, and favor, and um, then they work very hard to to try and protect these trade deals and that, by the way, is why you see some of this big outrage at the UK leaving the European Union because there's a nice, cozy, protected structure there for the incumbent lobby groups and um, the potential for that to unravel and for the UK to actually adopt free trade deals with with either Europe or the US or many other countries or different trade deal structures. Um, that, that pisses a lot of these people off and, and they, they sense that their turf is being, you know, trodden upon. Um, but, yeah, short answer is you don't need these deals. You just, you just need a trade. I mean, yours, you know, Jonathan Wood can trade with, uh, you know, someone else in, in Argentina freely. No government needs to be involved.
0: Yeah. Well, un- unless it's <laughs> it's drugs and things like that, unfortunately. So, um, <laughs> yeah, which I do disagree with.
2: But things like you know arms deals and things like that, um, you know, I accept that that, that there's some grey areas, but on the whole, um, we're mostly just uh, covered in trade regulation that we absolutely don't need. I
0: Sorry. want, I want to live in a world where I can order a, a whatever, an M16 automatic assault rifle on the internet and arrives at my doorstep in three days, that
1: would be great, wouldn't it? Well, you and a whole bunch of the people Trump is trying to ban from the United States <laughs> would like would like that to be able to happen. <laughs> yeah, but I
0: mean, this, the price of an AK-47 is cheaper than like a week's groceries in Iraq. So... Maybe we should just go there. That's my libertarian, that's my libertarian utopia
1: right yeah, there. Probably, well, you did try to sell uh, Somalia to me a little while back, uh, but uh, we found out the, the broadband wasn't as good, so we, we couldn't take the show there. Well,
0: not now. We've got fiber. But nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless. Um, so, Russell, I mean, looking looking to the future somewhat, do you think the, the concept of these big um, nation, not nation, like the EU and that sort of stuff, do you think, do you think those will exist in the future? Do you think… Do you think the power, absolute power, at the at the very top of the hierarchy, as we see it today, in terms of the nation state and, and these super super continents, in a way, super regulatory bodies that that control five hundred million people, such as the EU, uh, does Brexit indicate that it's fragile, or that people just feel like they've got no more transparency or accountability in the way they they vote? Um, what is your view on on, on that?
2: I think that um, my my I do have a big view on this, which is that I think that the nation state as we know it currently is is on its last legs. I think it's dying. Um, now, what 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 it what replaces it? I I don't know. Um, I'm not even saying that the, that the nation state itself will cease to be. I just think that that the way we conceive of the nation state and its functions is changing dramatically. And that's changing for, you know, many, many reasons, but some of the obvious ones are, you know, the radical decentralization of information, um, radical um, the radical kind of connectivity uh, that, that we have uh, globally now. So people are connecting across state borders. Because of decentralized information, people are... Um, able to make, to, to coordinate things that we have traditionally required or, or asked of the state to coordinate or somehow expected that they would, they're the only ones who can coordinate but suddenly coordination functions with technology are becoming you know, increasingly possible and so the whole definition of, of what the state is supposed to do for us I think is radically changing and I think it's an underappreciated trend um, because people um People are just still stuck in their present modes of thinking about how, but you know, we see the state as something that will always be in its present form forever, and that's actually a very unlikely scenario if you just look at history. So the nature of the state has always evolved, you know, quite dramatically through time. So, you know, if you if you think of um, if you think of Bitcoin for example, it's a hugely subversive technology on the nature of government. Um, it, it, it undermines um, gov- you know, the, the need for, or the ability for government to control money, money supply. It undermines the ability of government to control transactions. You know, we've just been talking about interna- free international trade. It undermines the ability of government to regulate industries and sectors. And as more and more technology comes to bear, um, I think that the, the role of the state is going to change dramatically. So these huge regulatory bodies, these huge supranational organizations, even the United States itself, which is really just a massive agglomeration of you know, fifty very, very diverse and big states. The United States as we know it um, may not may not may look very different as a political entity. We may get some breakaway regions. Um, we may see and we certainly I think are going to see the, the fragmentation of Europe back into its national constituencies. And, and you know maybe even to subnational constituencies across the continent um, and i think I think this is a very exciting trend you know i think I think that this because it's it's at, at its core it's being driven by um, technology and and the lack of need to keep relying on these big centralized sluggish um, out of date institutions quite frankly so you know on the whole I'm, I'm quite positive about that trend
1: yeah well I, I think uh I think that's, that's probably true. We we will see an uh, evolution of the state. Uh, I'm interested um, also that I think you know, I'm going to do what the left does and, and compare the EU to literally Hitler because um, what he really wanted was a uh, united Europe with him as its uh, grand leader and what the EU has is the EU as the sort of central government with the head of the EU as its grand leader and um, I think people are fundamentally rejecting that principle of government in terms of where someone many miles away from me, and this is historical as well, um, from the Roman and the Greek Empire, the, you know, um, the Ottoman as well. Someone who is um, hundreds or thousands of miles away from me has no idea of my life and my uh, the substance of my life controlling it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that it's... It's incredibly foolish, really, to pursue these these massive supranational regulatory organisations across huge swaths of land and massive, you know, huge populations. Um, and and there is a push, there is a push for for sort of global governance as well. I mean, you know, there is there is definitely a push for for more and more global governance, um, even even in the financial sphere. The IMF is looking to play, I think, a, a bigger role in and you know, perhaps perhaps a global currency, um, you know, perhaps the IMF becomes the global central bank and, and sort of funds, you know, the Fed and the... the
1: oh, they would the, love that.
2: ...and so on. Um, but, the you know, the record of these massive institutions and these huge entities governing millions of people, billions of people is not a good one. And, um, you know, I just don't know who likes being... You know who likes ceding freedom and sovereignty to these these ridiculous bloated bureaucracies? I, you know, I mean, there's just very little. You know, humans just don't like doing that, and there's there's very little democratic support for the European Union in Europe. I mean, the, on the whole, people, you know, it's, you know, some of the treaties in, in the European Union have been rejected by numerous referenda across you know, various different countries. Um, and uh and on the whole you know I, I don't think Europe is a united continent in the same way that Africa is not a united place either i mean it's you know they might have similar skin colors, but they're very different groups of people with different cultures and different languages and different ideas about life and um, and that's what makes life so great that you know, that rich tapestry of culture. And, you know, free, free cultures interacting across a continent like Europe is what made Europe so great in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s. Um, so, so what we've got now is, is not not appealing and I think is, is fundamentally being rejected across Europe as we speak. And I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, Brexit was a big hammer blow. And I think Brexit is probably, the, you know, the first nail in the coffin, really, of Europe. I, I don't see how, they, how that entity, that European Union entity and the Eurozone entity and, and you know, the, the ECB and, and the parliament in Brussels and all these guys, I just don't see how they bounce back from this. You know, I, I, I think probably five to ten years, You know, who knows, this is a tricky forecast, but probably you know, it seems like yep. five to ten years that entity is, is on the ropes big time and is possibly crumbled. All
1: right, well, um you just to sort of round up you did mention some e-currency, uh you know, bitcoin. Uh I know there are a number of them. What's your view on on all of these? It seems that they well they obviously unregulated, which is uh, in some ways a good thing, uh but when hackers break in and steal all your bitcoin, that also becomes a bit of an issue. Um and the price seems to be very fluctuant. Uh do you think that's the future of 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 currency?
2: Yeah, I do think it's the future of currency. Um, you know, unless some other fancy technology comes in and usurps that, uh, which is always possible. But certainly for now, I do think it's the future of currency. Um, I do think it will fluctuate quite wildly still until until it's been adopted by most people. Um, one of the things that gives currency stability is when they when they get sort of saturation in terms of adoption. Um, and then you've got a lot of trust in, in that currency, and it becomes a very stable um, unit of account, very stable medium of exchange. I think, as far as the cryptocurrencies are concerned, I, I think it's probably fair to say that Bitcoin is the only viable game in town. Um, it's, it's 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 probably the best designed cryptocurrency, and it's got to market first, so it's computing power and the distributed. Ledger is now so impressively large that, um, you know, it's, it's got very good security uh, from that perspective. Yes, you know, you still can get your Bitcoin started and hacked. And increasingly, you've got, uh, you know, companies springing up, security uh, services springing up around that, that I think will make that increasingly safe. And once that's very safe, which I think it just about already is, um, the only thing you really need to add to the Bitcoin equation is efficiency. Um, it's already quite efficient, but but uh, in fact, efficiency is not necessarily the best word. Um, user friendliness, accessibility, accessibility and user friendliness. Um, so we need to create a you know, we need to create some good user friendly interfaces on that Bitcoin um, architecture, and then I think uh, we've got something that is, that is incredibly viable. I think it's frightening to governments. And I think that they're trying, already trying to strategically respond to it. They will try and regulate it. And I think it could, to some extent, be quite a battleground, quite a quite an intense battleground. Um, that control for for currency supremacy um, over the next five, ten years is going to be massive, massive theme. And uh, I think if you guys can can speak to people who know, know a bit more about the subject than I do um, on it, I think that will be great because it's, I think, a really, really critical theme for the next few years. Yeah,
0: I, I think I, I tend to agree with you on on that. Um, I've got I've got I think a quarter of a bitcoin given to me many years ago. Rich? Eh? I, I don't know how to access it. You need a blockchain. I think
1: last time I bought a app. bitcoin, I had one like one twenty eighth of a bitcoin. You need like
0: an app and something. I don't know how to access it. But very anyway, difficult. you just leave it, and then in fifty years' time, it will be worth not much, or very very much. Who knows? Who knows? But nevertheless, um, Russell, I think we've taken up far more of your time than. We agreed to. We're going on to three hours now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it's been been very enjoyable.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And if you want to, what's your Twitter? At Russ Lamberti. That's right, yeah. Right. And buy his book, When Money Destroys Nations.
1: To explain hyperinflation. It's really good. I read it. Well done. There we go. I've been bad on the board today. Eh? Shocking. Russ, uh, thank you very, very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, that's it. You know where to find our show. And next week. Oh, next week is Jordan Peterson. Oh, Jesus. But don't ruin, Jesus. don't, don't ruin it for, for us. But
0: that's why we say after the
1: fact. <laughs> Um, so next week is, is another yeah. great show. Um, in the meantime, you know where to find us at renegade underscore report on, uh, the uh, Twitter, uh, and uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can like our page. You're welcome to uh swear at Ramon any you like. And we tweet a lot more than Shaka Sisulu. Yeah, and it's it actually comes from our own brains, not uh, fed to us by Gwedemantache. So I uh, if, if
0: if someone paid me fifteen million, I
1: would tweet whatever the hell they want. Yeah, all right. So when you see the Renegade report tweeting like Lena Dunham, you know what's happened. Thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Cheers.
0: Central.com